Welcome to the Wonder Women Tech Show, where we highlight, celebrate, and amplify women and BIPOC voices. We're bringing Wonder Women Tech to the airwaves. I'm your host, Lisa Mae Brunson. It's Lisa Mae Brunson with the Wonder Women Tech Show, and I'm so excited because today's guest, Dr. Elena Choa, is the first Hispanic female astronaut, and she was the director of NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas from 2013 until her retirement in May 2018. She became the first Latina to go to space when she flew on a nine-day mission aboard the shuttle Discovery in 1993. She has flown in space four times, logging nearly a thousand hours. She currently serves on several boards, including serving as chair of the National Science Board. Prior to her astronaut career, Dr. Ochoa was a research engineer and holds three patents for optical systems. She received a BS in physics from San Diego State University and both an MS and PhD in electrical engineering from Stanford University. She is honored to have six, six schools named for her and has been inducted into the Astronaut Hall of Fame, the California Hall of Fame, and the International Air and Space Hall of Fame. Dr. Achoa, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Lisa May. It's great to talk with you again. I know it is so wonderful to have you here and share space again. I know by now we're on a first name basis, as you instructed me the last time we hung out at the Wonder Women Tech Virtual Summit, but I just had to open this conversation up to honor and celebrate all of the amazing achievements achievements you've accomplished so far because your bio reads like someone who has just knocked life right out the park and there's like <laughs> nothing else left to achieve. I know sometimes it's hard to uh, actually reconcile that with the person that I know that I am. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, who is that woman? <laughs> I mean, welcome back to the Wonder Woman Tech ecosystem. I mean, I have to say you're one of my favorite people of 2020. And now I get to hang out with you in 2021. Yeah, it's a great way to start the year. It really is. I mean, I'd love you to take us on a trip down memory lane. Like we didn't get to really talk about this the last time we hung out, but I'd love to learn more about your roots. You know, I know your grandmother is an immigrant and, you know, I just want to get inside of your childhood and discover what it was like growing up in La Mesa, California. Okay, sure. Uh, well, uh, my dad's parents, uh, as you know, were from Mexico. and uh, But by the time my dad was born, he was the youngest of 12. Uh, they had moved to California. So he was born in uh, Southern California in, in Anaheim. Uh, my mom came from Oklahoma. And oh, wow. uh, my dad uh, worked at Sears. And so we moved to a suburb of San Diego, La Mesa, when I was about a year old from the Los Angeles area. And, uh, you know, I think I had a, a fairly 
typical suburban kind of childhood uh, there. Uh, probably one of the things I most like to do was read. I also started playing the flute when I was 10. Uh, but I really wasn't, didn't know much about science, didn't think I was interested in it. Uh, you know, I didn't know any scientists or engineers. So even in high school, uh, I only took biology. I should have taken chemistry and physics as well, uh, but I just didn't. And so I came to science maybe much later than a lot of people who choose science. Hmm. You would have never guessed that with like <laughs> all of your degrees in, <laughs> in physics and science. That's that's really fascinating. I mean, at what point did you pick it up and say, wow, this is something that I could get into? It was when I was in college and I, I really came to it through my math classes. Um, I did take a lot of math in high school, fortunately, and I continued on in college and so it was really when I was finishing up the calculus series and talking to the other students, uh, you know, I was really just in there because I always liked math and uh, most of the other people were in there because they were studying engineering or physics and they needed to learn the math that went with it. So uh, I decided I'd try to find out a little bit more about those subjects and, and see whether it might be something Hello? I was interested in. So I went and talked to two professors. One was a professor in the electrical engineering department. This was all at uh, San Diego State University, which was uh, our local university. And uh, unfortunately, he, uh, it was clear he was not interested in having me in his department. You know, he said, oh, we had a woman come through the program once, but you know, it's a really difficult course of study. And I don't know that you'd be interested in it, which was, ironic since I had sent uh, set up this appointment specifically to ask him about it. <laughs> um, but fortunately, I got a much different reception uh, from the physics professor that I went and talked with. And, you know, he seemed glad that I was interested to learn more about physics. Uh, he told me about some careers that people have, different ways that they could go if you've studied physics, which was really important because I didn't really know that. I, I didn't have a good picture in my mind of what somebody did with a physics degree. And then uh, he did ask about my math background and I told him I was finishing up the calculus series. And he said, well, that's great because if you started into physics next semester, you would have already learned the language of physics and you could concentrate on the concepts. And most of the students in the class will be trying to learn those simultaneously. So I think you do really well. Uh, so um, that's exactly what I ended up doing. I, I started into physics the next semester and I liked it. And, and that was how I got into it. I mean, for those of us that have no idea what physics is, can you just share a quick little learning, learner course <laughs> about like what exactly is physics and how do we apply it? Oh, gosh. You know, it's really the science that explains things that you see and experience every day in the physical world, whether it's light, heat, motion, uh, you know, all of those things are really described uh, by physics and explained. And there are, you know, equations that allow you to predict what's going to happen, you know, when there's an object in motion and it comes across other forces or, uh, you know, just uh, light coming from the sun, electromagnetic energy. Those are things that you study in physics as well. So even though you end up, you know, getting into the nitty gritty uh, with, with equations that explain how this works, 
to me, it's really about understanding just what you see as you go through your life every day in just everyday things. You know, why does a flag wave? Just all, all those kinds of things. So you got, you know, your Bachelor of Science degree in physics um, at San Diego State University. You graduated Pi Beta Kappa, and you earned your Master of Science degree and doctorate from Stanford Department of Electrical Engineering. But at what point did you say, you know, this is all great, but now I want to be an astronaut? Well, when I went off to graduate school, I went off to Stanford um, at the end of my first year there, uh, about when I was getting my master's degree is when the space shuttle flew for the first time. So, you know, it was a very different kind of spacecraft than it had ever flown before. And uh, even though that was just the first flight, NASA was talking about what they plan to use it for in the future. And, and it had many different capabilities and uses, but certainly a big one was the ability to do uh, research in space uh, of all different kinds and looking at doing experiments that you could not do uh, on the surface of the earth. So, you know, I was uh, start, about to start into a PhD program uh, in electrical engineering. It was really uh, applied physics. And uh, so, so I was looking at a career in research engineering and the idea of combining, you know, space and, and unique experiments uh, with this interest in research is, is what really uh, piqued my interest. And a couple years later is when Sally Ride flew, first American woman in space. So that was a huge deal. You know, obviously before Sally and her class was selected, uh, women weren't allowed to be astronauts. Uh, and so now the field was open to you know, people who studied science and engineering and uh, it was much broader. And now they were recruiting from a, a wider variety of people. Yeah. So that really just opened the door for you to be able to walk through it and make your mark. So when you first went to NASA, you were the first Hispanic female astronaut. Um, but, you know, how many women were in your particular class? And when did you start to see a real shift in women, you know, interested in becoming astronauts? In my class, there were 23 astronauts who were selected at the same time same time. And five of us were women. And I would say overall at that time, it was about 20% women in the astronaut corps, um, which may sound low, but I will say, you know, just from my experience in graduate school and my first job after graduate school at a department of energy lab, that was considerably higher <laughs> than what I had <laughs> seen before. So, uh, and and I had actually worked at NASA a couple of years as a research engineer and as a supervisor before being selected as an astronaut. And it was already clear when I went to NASA that they had made an effort to uh, not only recruit women, but other underrepresented minorities. I mean, they were starting from very little, right? So, um, you know, had a long way to go, but they clearly had more women there and um, other people of other uh, racial and ethnic uh, minorities that you didn't see a whole lot in science and engineering than I was used to seeing. And so I actually felt, <laughs> you know, that I was going into an environment which was uh, much more representative than what I was used to. And of course, since then, 
um, that, you know, that was over 30 years ago, uh, NASA has really uh, increased that. And so, you know, one thing that you didn't really see too much at NASA then was women in leadership roles. And, uh, you know, over the ensuing decades, of course, now you have seen uh, women in all kinds of visible and leadership roles at NASA. And I think to a much greater extent there than you see in some, you know, technical areas in some companies, maybe in the tech industry. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, and, and I think NASA really consciously understood that they had an opportunity to uh, raise the visibility of people you didn't normally see in science and engineering or the astronaut corps and realize that who they selected into the astronaut corps was going to make a difference in terms of them being able to send that message. Now, I'm curious. So you, when you're accepted into the corps, is everyone guaranteed to finish or you know, do people drop out? Do people get taken out? Well, there's definitely never any guarantees about flying in space because you just don't know exactly, first of all, what the country is going to support in a human space flight program. And then there can always be other issues that crop up, you know, medical issues or something that would make you ineligible. But the idea when when I was selected and, and really um, since then is we want everybody that we select to fly. That's our goal. Uh, we're going to put a lot of resources into training all of you. And we want to see you all fly. So they try to do all the weeding out before they actually select the group that groups that will come and train for the astronaut corps. Yeah, because I'm thinking, you know, when you're going to the military, you have all of this training. You have to be physically fit. You have, they, there's mental exercises. There's team coordination. What are some of like because I'll never be an astronaut, <laughs> but what are some of the things that, that you had to go through to prepare yourself for something like this? Because I mean, who, I, I imagine even just the endurance that you would have to have to be, to, to get to space and be in space is, is something most of us could never do. Right. Well, there are a lot of different kinds of training. And actually, that was one of the things I loved about being an astronaut was you know, every day was different. And I got to do a lot of different things. But you can kind of put them in, in two big buckets. And one of them was, you know, learning about the shuttle systems, uh, learning about some of the science that we would be doing experiments on. Um, you know, we were handed a long, large stack of workbooks to read about you know, each one of the shuttle systems that we were expected to study and learn. And that was all really familiar to me, not because I knew the subject matter already, but because I'd spent 10 years in college and <laughs> I knew how to study, you know, I, I knew how to, how to learn things. And, and so, uh, you know, it was easy to dive into that. And then there was a whole operational aspect that I really wasn't familiar with. Uh, so for one thing, astronauts fly in high performance jets, Somebody like me who didn't have much aviation experience, I had gotten a private pilot's license, but didn't have very many hours. And of course, I'd never flown in a, in a high performance jet, you know, where you need to wear an oxygen mask and, and wear a parachute and you're going much faster than, you know, something like a Cessna. Um, so we uh, learned to fly backseat, but you can take the stick once you're 200 feet off the ground. So you actually do a lot of the flying and you do communications and navigation. And then part of that, as well as it's applicable to the shuttle, is, you know, how would you bail out of an aircraft 
or bail, bail out of the shuttle at the very end of a mission, for example. And so uh, landing under a parachute on land or in water, getting picked up by a Coast Guard helicopter. Um, we did a little bit of land and, sur and water survival training, you know, making a, a tent out of our parachute material, um, as well as setting up signals to uh, get the attention of a helicopter who might be coming to rescue you. Uh, we went through a scuba course because the training for spacewalks occur in a large pool at Johnson Space Center, and you need to be scuba qualified to be able to do that. So these were all things that were pretty new to me. Yeah, I had never even been a Girl Scout. Uh, but fortunately, <laughs> like I said, <laughs> the goal was we want everybody to learn these skills and you need them to uh, feel comfortable and be safe uh, as an astronaut and be able to respond to all different kinds of scenar scenarios, both, you know, just the normal procedures, but all different kinds of emergency scenarios. And so people were there to help you learn. And, uh, you know, my fellow classmates helped me. A lot of them were in the military and you know, this was all old hat to them. So, uh, like I said, just something different, you know, all the time, which is one of the things I really enjoyed about it. You know, as I'm listening to you talk, and it's no secret, I've always been fascinated with space. You and I discussed that. I wanted to be an astronaut. But as I'm listening to you and thinking about having to bail out of a jet and <laughs> being rescued <laughs> in water, I'm just like, no, there's no way I would 100% have failed the second that they told me to get in any kind of a high-speed jet. Um, yeah, that's that's really fascinating, though, because you learn, I imagine you learn a lot about yourself in this process because you have to push yourself to all sorts of limits, not just being outside of your comfort zone, but physically you are putting yourself in very real danger. Uh, certainly, there's risk involved. You know, everybody works hard at, at NASA to minimize the risk, but but there's no question that there's risk involved, and you uh, you have to approach, uh, you know, what you're doing and any scenario that you might find yourself in. You know, what I would say is just sort of in a methodical way, trying to learn about it, trying to learn about what you can do when you find yourself in a situation where problems are happening and things aren't going the way that you want. Uh, but I think all of that really prepares you for space. You know, people ask me, well, were you scared on your first launch? And, you know, the reason that I wasn't scared, I mean, obviously I was keyed up, um, <laughs> probably a little bit nervous about the whole flight, just wanting to do well. But I, I wasn't just scared sitting there, um, in, in the shuttle. And it, it was because of the training. It was because, okay, I've sat in the seat a hundred times. Well, well over that, uh, you know, in training, in simulations, um, we've been through so many different failure scenarios and, uh, there are some situations for which you can't do anything about, but there's a whole lot for which there are actions that you as a crew member that can take and that people in mission control can take. And we're trained to respond to those. So uh, it really helps you approach the mission, I think, with the right mindset. Yeah. And there is something to be said for mindset, because the whole time I'm listening to you, I'm thinking it's this is a special kind of person to take on these kinds of, you know, experiences, these kinds of careers. I've had the privilege to be able to talk to so many amazing people who are in unique 
you know, professions that I could never, ever see myself in. I, I mean, I, I have a high active, you know, fight or flight response. Um, <laughs> I, it's hard for me to have like that mind over matter mindset, but right. like, I've talked to amazing people like you who they, 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 they demonstrate that they talk about, you know, being cool under pressure and even thriving under pressure, and as you're sharing your experiences, I'm literally like my palms are sweating. I'm like <laughs> feeling incredibly uncomfortable because I'm a visual person. So as you're telling me this, um, I actually am physically responding, but you're just like, oh yeah, I mean, this is this is how you do it. And I do think that there are people that are just built for this and we need people like you who will, who will go there. <laughs> well, you know, I have to say that, you know, if you talked to me when I was much younger, I would, I would have had a hard time visualizing myself doing it too. I wasn't a particularly adventurous person. You know, our family didn't camp. Like I said, I wasn't even a Girl Scout. So this was all really new to me. And of course I had questions about, you know, how well am I going to do? Am I, you know, am I going to be able to do and learn what I need to do? But as I said, people were there to help you be successful. And it was something I wanted to do so badly and so it was really a matter of, you know, learning about the systems, learning about the aircraft, learning about the shuttle, so that you do feel you understand, even when something's not going right, you know, what your options are in terms of responding to that. So, uh, you know, even if somebody's listening to this and is thinking like, oh, I just don't know if I could do that. All I can say is I would have been in the exact same situation. <laughs> yeah, don't listen to Lisa May. That is fear. Like that's just my fear. <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen to Ellen. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I I have been though in in instances and experiences where I've learned so much about myself doing things that I never would have guessed. I could do. So there is absolutely something to be said for that because I'm afraid of heights and I've climbed some very treacherous mountains in Italy, um, like literally scaling these things and looking over and you could just fall right off the cliff. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, there's something well, to be said for the human spirit. Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, I am not at all fond of heights myself. And you would actually be surprised at the number of astronauts who, uh, who really don't like heights. So, uh, you know, I think it's just interesting that you you can't always, you know, assume certain things uh, about people, you know, in terms of, of what they've done and, and, you know, sort of how they've overcome certain things. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean, you, uh, the industry is pretty male dominated. Were there any challenges that you faced with that dynamic? And did you have any mentors who supported you? Well, let's see. When I joined the Astronaut Corps in 1990, this was 12 years after the first class of astronauts was selected specifically for the space shuttle program. And that was the first one that included women and the first one that included minority astronauts. So I think they had a different experience than I did, but I certainly benefited from that 12 years, right? Where now it wasn't um, an unusual or a new thing to see yeah. women in the astronaut corps. And of course, um, a number of those women in the first uh, class uh, had flown a couple of times. Um, Sally Ride, 
of course, uh, Kathy Sullivan, who was the first woman, uh, you, American woman to do a spacewalk. And of course, they've done really well, uh, which shouldn't be surprising. I don't think that uh, being an astronaut is something that, you know, uh, men should be expected to do better than women. You know, it's, it's, again, it's a matter of learning things. And, um, and that just made it easier for those that, uh, you know, like me, that came after them. And then I hope, hopefully our class and, and others made it easier and, and, again, more common to see um, for people that have come since. And I think that's part of our jobs, right? Um, you know, yeah. you're trying to do a good job yourself. Um, and uh, be as good as you can in a particular career that you've chosen. But in doing that, you are also setting an example for uh, people who are younger than you or who just come into a field after you, who see you and realize, well, you know, there's no reason I, I can't do this. Yeah. I mean, as we're seeing with, you know, the new vice president of the United States, you know, yes. having a woman... Uh, in office and a woman in, of color in the highest office in the nation, it does yeah. really do something to to a person who's like, oh, th there's so many barriers, there's so many challenges. But then when you see that, I mean, you just awaken to the possibilities of, wait, I can do this. Like maybe I'm not going to go be vice president, but now the rules are broken and I don't have to accept you know, the, the barriers that are in front of me. And I think that's, you know, what we, the, the opportunity in front of us is seeing role models like yourself, right. like Vice President Kamala Harris mm -hmm. to say like these, the, you know, we can do something greater than what we think we can do. Right. And the new vice president has, I, I know already <laughs> affected so many people and uh, will continue to do so in the years to come. Um, in that way where, um, you know, kids, can, it just stretches the idea of what they think they might be able to accomplish and gives them ideas they might never have thought of otherwise. And so it's just really amazing to see that now. Oh, yeah. I'm so excited. I mean, you, speaking of like leadership, you became the second female director to run the Johnson Space Center. So first of all, that's some Wonder Woman power right there. <laughs> <laughs> but what did that role entail? You know, because I, I imagine you're managing teams, you're setting goals. Like, take us on a journey of what it was like for you to 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 be a director. Yes, well, it, it was a huge privilege uh, to be the director of Johnson Space Center. It's really the home of human spaceflight uh, for our country. And uh, so much has been accomplished by the team there, of course, long before I got there, uh, but also since as well. And uh, so we have about a little under 3,000 uh, government employees that work there, and then about another 7,000 or so contractor employees mm -hmm. who either work on site or in most cases right around there in the local community. And so we uh, are responsible for the operational human spaceflight programs, as well as the development programs and looking well into the future. And so we have a, you know, an engineering uh, group, um, probably the largest group that we have there. Of course, we have the astronauts. Uh, we have the people that work in mission control and um, all, all the folks that work in the back rooms that you don't necessarily even see. Um, we have a human health and performance uh, group 
who is really trying to make sure that astronauts stay healthy in space and can perform at a high level, um, as well as trying to understand and mitigate any long-term health effects that there might be. And then, of course, uh, we have folks that also, uh, you know, we curate um, all the materials that come back from space, like the moon rocks and um, other materials that have Mm. uh, subsequently come back. And we have a number of scientists who study uh, that kind of thing. And then, uh, you know, all of the other people that make it happen, right? People who work in human resources, in our uh, chief financial office, procurement, uh, lawyers, you know, er anything that it takes to make an organization of that size, and particularly one that's part of a federal agency operate. So it's uh, just an amazing group of people. And right now, uh, of course, the operational program is the International Space Station. So uh, Mission Control is the uh, really the coordinating center for all of that. And we have a number of people that support that, both on the engineering and operations side. Uh, Johnson Space Center is also developing a spacecraft to go beyond low Earth, low Earth orbit called Orion. And they work uh, with Lockheed Martin, who's the prime contractor on that. Uh, of course, mm, yeah. uh, Johnson Space Center has worked with Kennedy Space Center on the commercial crew program with the contracts that they have with both SpaceX and Boeing. And as you've seen, SpaceX has successfully taken NASA astronauts to and from now the International Space Station, and and Boeing is working on demonstrating that for this year. So uh, there's a lot going on, and it's a great workforce. You know, very talented, very passionate about what they do. So they're really like the hub of future space exploration. Like yeah, absolutely. Being on the forefront of that. That's really exciting. You know, I would love to work with SpaceX. I think, <laughs> I think they're really cutting edge. But I've got, you know, I've had the chance to hang out with Lisa Callahan at Lockheed Martin, and she actually talked a little bit about Orion as well. Oh, good. Yeah, I know Lisa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. She's one of my favorite people, too. Absolutely love her. Um, So, you know, we had one of our listeners ask the funniest question, and I just thought, because apparently it's a real thing, like, um, she wanted to know, like, what does space smell like? Because she says, like, there, supposedly there's a smell on the on the spacewalk. And so I said, you know, her name is Kelly Ray. I said, I will ask you, what does space smell like? So, yes, there actually is a smell. And I think it's oh. from the um, atomic oxygen. And, and when you notice it is, uh, let's say you, a couple of people have gone outside to do a spacewalk and now they come back in, you've you know, repressurize the crew lock and then you um, open the hatch so that they can come back into the pressurized part of the shuttle or the International Space Station. And there, there is a smell associated w- with that as you, as you open that hatch. And different, different people describe it different ways, but it's a little bit of a um, barbecue, not the a little bit of a barbecue smell, but that's metallic in a certain way. So you can almost feel it on your tongue if you kind of know what I mean um, by a little bit of a metallic twinge. To yeah. It. Um, but um, I, yes, I I have noticed that, and certainly a, a lot of astronauts have noticed that. So um, 
you know, obviously most of the time you're just inside your spacecraft. And, and so, you know, we, we just, we bring up our own air and we condition it and, and you wouldn't smell it in that way. But when you are uh, bringing people back in who have been outside um, doing a spacewalk, that's when you notice it. That is so interesting. Cause when I read that, I was just like, this is ridiculous, but I, <laughs> but I promised her I would, I, I, I she was persistent. So I said, okay, I'm going to ask. And so I, but I'm really fascinated that there's an actual real answer to that. So <laughs> I will never like second guess that anything <laughs> again. I think I will just always go with the questions that are, that, that people want to know. Um, so with that, we're going to take a quick break for today's Pioneering Women in STEAM segment. And we will be back with Dr. Elena Choa. And now it's time for today's Pioneering Women segment. Today's Pioneering Woman is Nikki Giovanni. Giovanni, born in Knoxville, is an American poet and writer who initially captured the public's attention with her work in the Black Arts Movement in the late 1960s. Her work ranged from calls for Black power, children's poems, and intimate personal statements. In 1967, Giovanni received her bachelor's degree and was deeply devoted to her presence in the civil rights movement. The release of Those Who Ride the Night Winds in 1983 was dedicated to highlighting Black American heroes and heroines. Her experience as a single Black mother helped inspire her children's poems. Her latest poetry collection, I Am Loved, released in 2018, paints a portrait of the many ways love shines in our lives. Thank you for your pioneering contributions, Nikki Giovanni. Hello, innovators. We are back with Dr. Elena Choa. We've been hanging out in deep space, smelling barbecue, avoiding asteroids, and becoming an astronaut while making history. So it's time to switch the tune because we want to learn a little bit more about you, Ellen. A little birdie told me you are a classical flautist and played with the Stanford Symphony Orchestra, and you once received the Student Soloist Award. Now, help me out here. Like, you're into physics and math and science, but you're also into classical music? Well, actually, I got into music uh, long before I got into science. As I mentioned, you know, I was uh, two or three years into college before I really got into science. But I started playing the flute when I was 10. And, as you know, so I played uh, through junior high and high school. I was in the concert band, the marching band, the orchestra, Civic Youth Orchestra of San Diego. And uh, even when I went off to graduate school, uh, I had the... Uh, experience of being able to play at least some of the times with the Stanford Symphony Orchestra. And I did solo with the Stanford Chamber Orchestra. This is something that you have to audition for. And um, so it was just a big part of my life. And I took lessons uh, at Stanford the whole time I was there as well. I, mm. I continued on from what I used to do in high school and college and uh, gave some solo recitals even after I graduated from graduate school. And I, I was lucky enough to actually be able to take my flute into space on one of my missions, my very first oh. mission. We were um, one of our sort of our side um, jobs or other objectives was to film a video for kindergartners, first graders, second graders about living and working in space. 
And uh, so we ended up putting in a, um, a shot of me playing flute in space uh, to just point out that you can uh, continue on with some of your hobbies when you're in space, maybe a little bit about what's different and what's the same. Um, so to me, it was uh, just a, a wonderful way to be able to, you know, take this uh, experience of music, which was really important to me and, and kind of marry that up with my human spaceflight experience. I think that is so incredible. Is that something that our listeners can Google? Is there like photos floating around on Google? <laughs> the uh, there's definitely a photo. And I think there's a, a very short clip of me playing, although it, I never think it sounds particularly good, but um, <laughs> not, not quite the way I remember it exactly. But yeah, there's a little bit of that out there. We are always our worst critics. I'm telling you, <laughs> always. Do you, do you still play? Uh, just for myself. Uh, yeah. You know, um, for a long time, it was just really hard other than getting in, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of practice in the morning, uh, you know, with with my job and my kids and all. But when I uh, retired from NASA uh, two and a half years ago and moved to Boise, Idaho, I, I hunted up a uh, the instructor here at Boise State University. So I periodically take lessons and sometimes play duets. So. It's something, uh, one of the things I like about music is you can really do it your whole life just as a hobby. Oh, yeah. I mean, I sing, but I don't, I would never like go perform somewhere, but I do it for myself. So I get it. Like there's days I'm just like in a Ella Fitzgerald mood and <laughs> a Cole Porter, you know, I listen to a lot of Cole Porter. Oh, um, wonderful. Music. Yeah. And so I, I grew up on that. I, I also was in choir, magical choir, acapella choir, show choir. Um, but I would never like go out and perform, but it is something that I feel is, I'm not as great as I was when I was super conditioned in training, but mm -hmm. I can still hold my own at a karaoke bar <laughs> <laughs> or in my bathroom where the acoustics are the best, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, I mean, you're retired. What are you doing like to fill your days? I mean, I imagine someone like you cannot sit idle for long. No, no I, it turns out my days are filled. That's, that's cool. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you're here with us today. <laughs> right. So I do things like this. Um, so I am on several boards. I'm the chair of the National Science Board. So uh, that board really has two roles um, along with the Director of the National Science Foundation, we govern uh, NSF and set its policies. And then we also act as independent advisors, uh, both to the administration and to Congress on the state of the science and engineering enterprise in our country. So still very involved with science and engineering um, on a couple of corporate boards and on a, a foundation board, which one of the things it does is uh, fund um, fundamental scientific research as well. And, uh, and then I do a variety of speaking and um, uh, including things like this podcasts. Yeah. And then I enjoy having a little bit of time just to uh, enjoy being outside and spend time with my husband, a little more personal time than I used to when I worked full time. Has the pandemic like changed things at all for you? Like, are you home more? Yeah. Oh, yes. I was traveling almost every week uh, yeah. before the pandemic. And now I haven't left uh, Boise, Idaho since March 6th of last year. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, relating. Um, but, 
you know, really the things that I do, I can do virtual. So, you know, all of our board meetings and, you know, all the uh, work that we need to do in between, particularly for the National Science Board, you know, we can do that uh, virtually. Um, and uh, even some of the speaking, which originally a lot of uh, the things that I were was going to do were canceled, you know, conferences that were being held. But, you know, over time, people adjusted, right? And they started holding these things virtually. And so I participate virtually as well. Yeah, we've been lucky to have you ourselves. <laughs> right, exactly. So we can also add TV star to your extensive resume because there's an episode of True Colors streaming <laughs> on Peacock TV all about you. Yes. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that uh, that came up last year. It was uh, kind of came up out of the blue. Um, they were looking at doing episodes of eight different uh, people of Hispanic heritage in the United States from you know different kinds of fields and profiling each of them uh, about twenty minutes each or so. Um, so the show is called True Colors, and one of the episodes is is about me. Now, of course, the the tricky part was this was uh, during the pandemic. And um, so, uh, you know, first of all, this, the camera crew that came, you know, they were getting COVID tested before they left LA, after they got to Boise, they didn't spend too much time in our house, but what time they were, they everybody of course was masked up. And then we tried to do a lot of the uh, filming outside uh, in order to do it safely as they were trying to do this uh, during the pandemic. But I was really glad that they included somebody from the STEM fields, uh, because yeah. a lot of times um, that is sometimes overlooked as I, as I look at people from, you know, sports and entertainment and business and things like that. So uh, I was glad to get that flavor out there. So again, people who are watching realize, hey, this is a, an interesting and challenging field, and and we need more people entering that field, particularly. Um, people who are underrepresented. Well, you know, I'm going to have to go check out that episode because I just want to say, well, I just talked to her. <laughs> <laughs> We're on a first name basis. <laughs> there is a little bit of my flute in there too. Uh, oh, is there? My instructor and I were playing duets out on our back patio and, and they put a little bit of that in the background. Oh, okay. So now I really need to check this out because <laughs> I am so excited to just hear, you know, all the beautiful facets of, of, of you. I, I love that I get to be privy to that as well as share that with our audiences because, you know, we do need very real role models. I mean, this is what I, I actually created the this podcast with my team because we wanted to get behind the scenes of the people that we see on our stages and, and out in the world, you know, doing these remarkable things, being scientists, being engineers, being entrepreneurs. Um, a lot of times we don't get to see, you know, pull back the curtain and see who they are as humans and learn about like their backstory, learn about their fears, their successes, their wins, and their vulnerabilities. And this show is all about truth and vulnerability. So Ellen, I'd love you to share something with us. It could be a fear. It could be an upcoming project. It could be as 
a funny, you know, thought, but something that you've never shared with anyone else before. Oh gosh. You know, I've done so many um, interviews, Elisa May. I don't know if I can come up with anything <laughs> that I haven't talked about before. What what do you, what would you be most interested in hearing a little bit more about? Well, the funny thing is so many people say that and then they they have a moment where they're like, oh, wait a minute. And so a lot of times it could be coming from um, like we've had people share very funny things like one person admitted to like talking to herself in the mirror as if she's as if Oprah is interviewing her. <laughs> others <laughs> others have shared, you know, um, their, you know. Uh, insecurities or feeling like they're not enough or imposter syndrome. Others have shared upcoming books or projects. Um, others have shared, you know, uh, how uh, they're, how they're feeling about the pandemic, um, things like that. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, as I'm sitting here at my desk, I'm, I'm staring at the screensaver on my computer, which happens to be a, a picture of the South Pole Station. And so, um, you know, I told you I'm on the National Science Board and the National Science Foundation is the one that runs um, the US Antarctic program. Um, and they have three um, stations essentially in Antarctica. Um, the big mm -hmm. one that most people have heard of, McMurdo. Um, and then there's one called Palmer Station. And then they actually have uh, the only station at the South Pole. And I got a chance to visit um, as a National Science Board member a couple of years ago. And to me, the parallels between, you know, sort of living and working and trying to supply people at the South Pole um, were very similar to me to what it takes to, you know, get people to space and keep them in space and keep them supplied you know, with uh, food and, and water and, and everything else. So in addition to it just being uh, a great adventure to go there, um, I, I just really love talking to the people, the scientists, but also the operations and logistics folks, because it was just so familiar to me based on what we do uh, at NASA with the International Space Station Program. And uh, we it's interesting because when they take visitors like me there, rather than, let's say, a scientist who's going to spend maybe several weeks there. Um, generally, you only get a visit of two hours long. And, and what they do is they'll have a couple of planes leave McMurdo, fly to the South Pole, which is a, 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 about a three-hour flight from the McMurdo station in Antarctica. And they don't want to shut down the aircraft if they don't have to, because it's so cold there and they're concerned about oh, it yeah. not starting up again properly. You know, uh, seals can leak and that kind of thing. So they send two aircraft about an hour apart. And, and of course, there's always supplies on the aircraft um, and other people who are going to be staying for a long period of time. So they offload everything. Um, they give us a tour. And then uh, the first Aircraft flies back after being on the ground for about an hour. The next aircraft uh, arrives. And then uh, visitors like me, who are there for you know, a specific purpose, oversight, uh, are taken back on this second plane. So you get about two hours and you have a chance to walk around at least part of the station, meet some of the scientists, hear about what they're doing, and you know, just get a, you know, 
get a view of, of what it's really like and really see um, the geographic South Pole of the Earth, which is pretty exciting. Mm. Well, exactly. the day that we were there, the weather back at McMurdo actually turned bad. And so they had the second aircraft turn around before it ever got to the South Pole. Oh, and no. then they decided the first aircraft, the one that we came in, was not going to be able to fly back that day too. So they actually did have to shut it down. And we actually ended up being there um, about almost 24 hours. So we had much more time to wander around the station. We got to go out and visit the South Pole Telescope. There are several um, smaller science facilities that are, say, 200 yards away from the main station. And so we got to see those, the ice cube neutrino experiment, um, you know, eat in the cafeteria there. We actually got to go 55 feet underground where the, um, sort of the water and sewage lines run. And it stays at a constant minus 55 degrees Fahrenheit down there. Oh, my God. Um, no. So we kind of walked along <laughs> those tunnels. And I just felt so lucky that, uh, you know, we had a, a much richer experience there than we uh, originally anticipated and just really enjoyed uh, getting to meet some of the folks who were who were working there, either as scientists or, again, as, you know, you know, some of the medical staff and the and the chefs and the food service oh, people, wow. you know, everything that it takes to to keep people alive down there. Oh my gosh, that is such a fascinating story. And the whole time I was just thinking about how cold it must have been. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they give us they give us all the gear that we need to use. So um, so that's good. Oh, and the other thing, because we had extra time, we did get to, you know, see almost every room um, you know, in the station that at least that's a, a public room. And they they had a music room and there was actually a flute in there. So I got to oh. So I put the flute together and started to play. And I thought, well, I know I'm not the only person to play flute in space. I was the first one, but not the only one. But I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm the only one that's played both in space and at the South Pole. At the South Pole. Oh, my <laughs> God. That is so fascinating. It's once-in-a-lifetime experience. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, that was such a fantastic story, Ellen. Thank you so much for sharing with us. I mean, you really have had such an incredible life and you're still kicking. I mean, there's so many things for you to do. I, I'm like thinking, okay, TV star, what's next? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've, I've just been so fortunate to have these amazing experiences in space and, and being able to visit uh, Antarctica. But, you know, what I really think about when I think about my years at NASA is the people I worked with, right? I mean, it's really a team of people that make everything happen. Um, they have to be dedicated and, you know, just really focused on uh, achieving a goal. And, you know, being a part of that team, that, that to me was uh, the best thing ever. Oh, and I imagine, you know, your teams become family. You know, you have it. Yeah, you have absolutely. the biggest extended family. <laughs> <laughs> the who's who of, of people in, in your family, for yeah. sure. <laughs> I mean, you've earned all of the incredible accolades. You have schools named after you and you've certainly earned your rest. So looking back, would you take the easy road or the road less traveled and why? 
Well, you know, I had no idea what road I was really on, right? I mean, as as I sort of just went year to year when I was younger, um, you know, I made certain decisions, but without really knowing exactly where I was headed. I know sometimes when people look at my resume, it looks like I knew exactly what I wanted to do and just went after it. But it, it certainly didn't feel that way at the time. But you know what? I, I did work hard. I, you know, I took my education seriously um, and and I worked hard at everything I did. And, and you know, I think this is uh, my parents' influence, especially my mom's, that, you know, good things will come when you work hard. You, you know, nothing's ever guaranteed, but it's going to put you in a better place than you would have been, it, you know, if you really weren't giving it at all, your all. And I, looking back, I, I wouldn't change a thing. Oh, and I'm glad that you didn't change a thing because then we wouldn't be so inspired and fascinated by your journey. And because you have broken, you know, barriers and pushed forward, I mean, you really have created pathways for not just women um, and Latinas, but people who have felt marginalized and who have felt like I can't do something because the world reflects to me that I can't. And so, you know, I want to celebrate that today because, you know, our theme this year is we are generations and you certainly have paved the way forward for future generations. Well, thank you. You know, it, one of the reasons I like, uh, you know, talking to you and, and doing other kinds of podcasts and speaking is, just to let people know, you know, there's so many wonderful possibilities out there. A lot of times it seems impossible to, to reach certain goals. But, you know, I always felt like even if I'd never been selected as an astronaut, the fact that I was interested in it, it actually led to a, a, a position at NASA even before being selected as an astronaut. And I, I just would have had more opportunities no matter what, just because of the fact that I was interested in going after that position. And then you went after it. <laughs> That's the lesson that we all need to take with right. us is, is, you know, once you have fostered that interest, go after it, make your mark. Like you never know where you're going to end up, whether you're going to be among the stars with Ellen or in the White House, like Vice President Kamala Harris, the sky is the limit. Thank you so much, Dr. Ellen, for being here with us and... We look forward to having you again in our ecosystem. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. thank you so much for being here, innovators. We'll see you next week when we take on the world one more time. <laughs> <laughs>